Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Benes, and every week I sit down for a 30-minute conversation. Let's be honest, a lot of times it runs over. I can't stop talking. I don't have boundaries, and it's an issue. This week, I was very curious about why abstinence is still being used to treat addiction. So I'm talking with co-founder and executive director of Alternatives Behavioral Health, UCLA psychologist and addictions expert, Dr. Adit Jaffe. Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Vaness, and this week I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Adi Jaffe. I said it right, right? You did. You said it perfectly. Oh, yes. What is that gorgeous? What Israeli. Is, love. Yeah, I'm from Israel originally. Adi is like such like a, she's multicultural. She is. And uh, you know, it's, it's funny. So it actually means jewel in old biblical Hebrew. And then my last name means pretty. Jewel pretty. So pretty jewel. I love that. Yeah. So... You know, the name of the game for this is abstinence. Is there anything to her? You know, I feel like I, and along with a lot of people, I think, you know, kind of have used this idea of like abstinence from lots of things as this like thing to club themselves over the head with. Mm. The only thing that I really am big on abstinence for was like cigarettes because they grossed me out so bad. I get it. And I used to smoke so many of them. I did too. Uh, you did? Yeah, I used to be a two-pack-a-day smoker. Two packs a day? How much cocaine were you doing to smoke meth. two? Meth. I okay. was doing a lot of meth. That makes more sense. Nope. Like, I, I hate cocaine. You have to do it oh, too often. Yeah, because I was like, I'm like, I mean, you have to really do a lot of uppers to smoke that many cigarettes. Well, my joke was when I was high all the time was I'd be up, like each day lasted three days. Oh. So you smoke a lot of cigarettes. You don't take a lot of showers every week. Because, you know, you take a shower like every morning, right? But my mornings happen every three days. Oh, it was long. So you're a recovered meth addict. I can use the word recovered. Yeah. People ask me if I'm in recovery. I'm not really. So I think that kind of comes to this whole conversation, right? I um, Well, yeah, because, like, you know, like my stepdad was, like, sober for, like, 27 years when he died. I grew up, I like, heard. coloring, coloring books outside of, like, I talk about that on Good Old Getting Curious all the time. Yep. So tell us what your experience was. Well, so I was a meth addict, went to jail, but um, before I went to jail, I got put in rehab because I had to quit. And uh, I failed my first rehab, realized, you know, at that point I was kind of homeless, like I was sleeping in my car. Okay, not to interrupt you, but can I just say? Please. Your skin is such a testament to the healing capabilities of the human body because your skin, honey, it's got the glow of like Mother Nature, Jesus, Allah, whatever you want to call it. You're glowing, honey. Oh, thank you. Yeah, glowing. Thank you. You know, coming from you, I, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. I, can I tell you, it was actually kind of stressful to show up here. Like, People oh. always say that to me. I'm like, I'm the least judgmental person. And, and you're totally here like you're working on a Saturday, which I love. But I was coming here, I'm like, shit. I can say oh, because right? like I look like because like, I'm well, slapped. Like, no, like you're stylish. I shot a I commercial go, this morning. I was busy. It was hot. The opposite. I'm saying like I felt like I had to dress up to come here. But just be you. You're gorgeous. You're yeah. stunned. Thank you. If Thank you guys you. could even see, he's wearing this like button up blue moment. He's giving you like I shouldn't be attracted to you, teacher, but I am. Like <laughs> it's it's like totally like your your vibe today. It's just saying to my wife, nothing happened on set. No, we're in here with very, four people. Very, this is, that means nothing. We're this is full pen status. <laughs> okay, like oh, there's like there's no alcohol. There nope. is multiple. No. Witnesses, I love it. You're in the clear. Perfect. So, but tell us, tell us your story. What, yeah. What, so I um, went into my second treatment, and then I ended up being sober for three years. But in those three years, I had to go to jail. I spent a year in jail because of all this stuff that I did when I was uh, using and selling drugs. And when I got out, I started going back to school. And at some point in the middle, it just started sounding to me like the story I'd been told was not my story, right? I mean, as soon the twelve as step story. The twelve step. You're an addict. You're an addict for life. This is the way you're gonna have to live the rest of your life. And because that, I don't, you know, that story doesn't feel gorgeous. I have to say, it doesn't. It doesn't feel that way for anybody. But if you don't go along, 
there's all these names for you. You're in denial or you haven't hit rock bottom yet. You know, there's all this stuff. And I saw I get into arguments with people every day on Facebook, LinkedIn, all this stuff about this. So I went on my own experience of kind of trying to figure out what to do. And I read a lot. I mean, so I went to Cal State Long Beach for my master's. I went to UCLA for my PhD. And I was studying neuroscience and everything that I could to figure out what my path should be, but then hopefully help other people through the same thing. And so now I consider myself an ex-meth addict or a recovered meth addict. Um, I drink socially. It's not a problem. It hasn't been a problem for 10 years. I've even dabbled in little other things over the last 10 to 12 years without problems. Like a little psychedelic moment or something? I, you know, I had I did a lot of psychedelics back in the day, but like I've done Molly a handful of times. Like I can't smoke weed. I'm one of those people who gets paranoid when I smoke weed, so it's You're probably useless. smoking a sativa. Whatever it is that I'm smoking. I bet if you had like a little, just a little sip of a gorgeous indica or like a little CBD oil. I can do CBD oil. But I bet you would love like a gorgeous indica. I bet you just had a sativa because when I smoke a sativa, I'm like, oh my God, everyone hates me. I talk too much. Like I'm a total idiot. I should have never said that to him. He hates me. Everyone hates me. You're totally. But then when I smoke indica, I'm just like how you know me. So so people people have tried that for me before and it hasn't what worked. Happened? And that, that could be true. Actually, by the way, Chris Evans, the guy who you had on the podcast before, in his class, I learned one of the reasons why for some people that kind of paranoia turns on and never really turns off. And it has to do with opioid receptors, which you guys talked about, but a different kind. It's called a kappa opioid receptor. And kappa opioid receptors are the same. Do you remember salvia? Yes. Yeah. So sal- well, I never did her, though, because I don't trust her. Oh, you shouldn't. No. I mean, it's like I'm like, just paranoia. give me normal weed. Yeah, you, well, you just turn on paranoia with yeah. salvia. So it turns on this kappa opioid receptor. That's the thing that causes paranoia. And I have a feeling that something got screwed up in mine over the time. Because I used to be a stoner. Like, I used to smoke... All and then day, she turned on you. I remember the bong hit I took. I've literally heard this story before when she, no, there's this thing where it turns on people. I remember the, I was in college in Buffalo uh, State University in New York. I took a bong hit and I turned green and had a God, attack. I was hoping that was going to happen. I keep waiting for that bong. I'm like, do you? Well, I'm like, where is she? You like, seem like you like her. I love her. Okay. I'm, then I'll, honestly, don't worry about that, it. That, 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 this is like my relationship with marijuana. I used to think that the problem was, was that I smoked her all the time. Okay. Then I realized the problem was, is that I thought it was a problem that I smoked it all the time. So that's literally the reason I wrote this book was I meet people all the time for whom at least half the struggle is the punishment and the shame and the judgment they feel about their own activity. And if they could just open up and talk to the people in their life about how they really feel and not how they believe other people want them to feel so that they play that role, they become so much more comfortable and other things just fall into place. I have a client of mine who um, who I've done this work with. Her mom just died, and she took care of her mom for the last four months as she was passing, which is really difficult. Yeah. Right? I mean, to have your mom living with you in the last four months of her life and then have her die. Terribly debilitatingly difficult event. Now, for two years, her drink has been under control. She's been really, really good. Not fully abstinent. Like, she'll have a glass of wine at a wedding or something like that. But she doesn't really drink at all anymore. That's what she came to me for, and it worked. And then her mom died, and she texted me. She actually voxed me a couple of days ago, and she said, um, you know, I'm really struggling. I've been sitting at home, smoking weed, drinking. She even, like, did some drugs. Yeah, because she's, like, trying to numb, very much self-soothing, like, not feeling good, very exactly. uncomfortable, need to self-soothe. And she started really judging herself. And my only response was, like, you know what? Your mom just died. After four months, you took care of her. Who do you have that you're able to actually be honest about? And she's, she said, nobody. I'm trying to kind of just control it myself. I said, that's your problem. The drugs are not your problem. The problem is that you feel like you can't be emotional because your mom just died. Find somebody in your life you can rely on and share with because – we live in the society where you feel like you got to be perfect 
And so we use things, other things, to make us feel better than we really do to be able to pretend to act with other people. And a lot of the work that I do with people is to take that away. That's where the F shame, the fuck shame kind of bracelet comes from. Um, And that entire motto for me is our shame keeps us back from being able to be who we really are. And then we need to cover that up somehow. And a lot of people who come to me are covering that up with drugs, porn, you know, alcohol, whatever. Um, you know, and if you've been living under a rock and you uh, haven't listened to Brene Brown's amazing TED Talk, like right. that first one, the most amazing the one. The vulnerability one, yeah. Yeah, but it's like, what if you don't know what shame is? Tell, the, tell everyone what shame is. Perfect. So um, shame, the easiest kind of way to describe it is shame is the emotional reaction that people have to feeling as if they're living outside the norms of society. Um, stigma is a word that's obviously commonly associated with it, but stigma is like the title you give groups that are shamed, that are being shamed. So for instance, there could be racial stigma and stereotype. There could be uh, stigma about homosexuality. There could be stigma about drug use. The people who are stigmatized often have the reaction of feeling shame. And so shame is what happens when your internal compass comes against an external social set of norms that don't comply. And to me, you know, shame is the emotion that we use to ostracize people. And when we lived in tribes and we all needed to live in small groups that all supported each other and did that, shame served this really social glue sort of role. If you didn't conform, you were cast aside. But we live in such a diverse society now that I feel like one of the problems is there's always an opportunity to feel shame. You can be body shamed. You can be shamed about your intelligence, the color of your skin, your sexual orientation, what substances you want to or don't want to put in your body, anything. Yeah. And with social media now, it's so exacerbated that people wake up in the morning feeling less than almost no matter what their stat uh, in life is. Because we're just like over contented. Yeah. Like there's like everyone is like we're like we're more plugged in than ever. You can compare yourself to everybody all the time. But we know that comparison is a thief of all joy. But mm. I think Brene explained it like this, or I heard someone who reminds me of Brene who explained it like this. But this is how shame speaks to me. It's like, if you knew X about me, you wouldn't love me anymore. Yeah. Like, if you knew this, like, one essential truth about me that no one else knows, like, you would no longer love me. Like Which, which means I have to hide it at all costs. Right. And, like, right. that's, like, the experience of, like, living with shame. Absolutely. And... And so for me, the the problem that most of the people that I see will have drug abuse issues or sex addictions or alcohol problems, they learned a long time ago that in order to avoid feeling that shame and in order to feel okay in their circumstances, they have to cover it up somehow. Yeah, like no one can know that I'm an alcoholic. No one can know that I'm like going to like jerk off to the tumbler like 17,000 times a day. Or nobody can know that I feel so anxious around other people that I want to shut down and I feel like I'm the stupidest person on earth. But then when I drink, I don't care so much about what other people think. And so it's okay. And so from the age of 16 or 15 or 12 or however old they are, they just start using alcohol instead of the more adaptive version of doing that, which is to say, okay, why am I socially anxious? Am I just hanging out with the wrong people? Do I have some weird image issues that I need to deal with? Do I need to build up my self-confidence? Instead of doing that, they use a crutch, which works really, really well. I mean, that's my story. I don't know if you, when you started smoking weed, but like, you know, for me, I remember the day it was a, a sleepover camp and I drank some alcohol. For the first time ever, I didn't care if I made myself weird around girls and I felt really comfortable talking with people. Which is cute. I loved it. Yeah. 
Okay, wait. I know that like where I'm going, it's going to end up being like a like way longer conversation, and I sense that I'm like close to 15 minutes. So I'm just gonna like <laughs> I'm just gonna like before I like open that can of worms, Love I'm just it. going to say, y'all, we're gonna listen to a gorgeous commercial. I bet it's gonna be funny. I bet I probably recorded something in my closet with this cool thing that I record my commercials in, and I and I bet I'm about to give you a journey of advertising bliss. Enjoy it. Love it. Stick with it. It's like not that long. I love you so much. Mean it bye. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. And uh, we have Dr. Jaffe, who I have to say, you're gorgeous. It's fine. <laughs> we you. already talked about it. There's four people in this room. It's fine. They're going to see it on the Instagram post. That's probably why they even listen to it. And it's great. Thank um, you. Yeah. One thing that you were saying before is that like, so you have like the thing that you're medicating, like the thing you're like, I feel a little uncomfortable when I drink, I feel better. But a lot of times the reason that people get into that situation is because like they don't have anyone in their lives to teach them to self-soothe True. or their own parent or whoever like had something to do with however you got there. Yeah. In my experience, like becoming an adult has been like learning to be my own parent, like learning how to mm, self-soothe. Like, Cause I've been in every, every 12 step room because of, because of my stepdad and because of, you know, me, I've been in every room that you could ever really want to be in. And I'm very familiar with the type of um, interworkings of like 12 step shame. And we actually did an episode uh, about cults on getting curious. And mm. uh, we were talking about how like there's sometimes in certain inner circles of 12 step, it can feel kind of culty because you can feel kind of like ostracized or like, because I was telling you earlier, like I'm very much like into like a harm reduction moment. Yeah. And there were moments when I would go to 12 step, especially around weed when I was in my earlier 20s, because I was like, when I quit smoking cigarettes, I really just like replaced it with weed. Oh. Like if someone was like really driving me nuts with their haircut or the day was just like really intense, like I would just roll like three little teeny tiny little pinner joints. And then if I was really ready to like rip a chunk of my hair, I'd be like, excuse me a minute. And I was like, run outside, do my little microdose, then come yeah. back and be like, oh my God, I can do your hair now. Like, I don't want to like die. I like feel so much better. But when I was like, oh, maybe I don't want to do that. And like, but then sometimes if like, I've been in so many meetings where people were like, I was supposed to be like a year sober today, but I actually have been using for three months and I didn't like tell anyone about it. And they're like, so dev and then they come clean and then everyone's like, but it's like, that's like such like a thing. Like, and, and for me, I'm like, I love like a harm reduction moment. I'm like, let me just go to therapy. Like there's a million ways to the top of the mountain. Totally. So I think there are a couple of things here that I want to talk about. And the first one is when I work with people, one of the things that I try to make clear is there are a lot of different ways to measure how well you're doing, right? The AA way is how many consecutive days have you had or what steps are you on, right? So like, have you worked through the steps and how many days do you have consecutively? What I tell a lot of the people is what if you measured what percent of the recent year, let's say you've been sober. So let's say last year you used every single day and you want to reduce. And let's say this year you used you know, six times a week. and That's one, a seventh percent better. Or- it's, not, it's one seventh better, right? So you end up with 50 some days out of the year that you didn't use. I mean, that's, that's cuter that's than a, not. That's a huge improvement. If you do that for another year, you can end up with something where all of a sudden you're, you have a third of your problem gone gradually. And I think people talk about it as if it's impossible. What happened to me in my journey to getting to writing this book and starting the kind of the online ignited recovery stuff that I've done is, the online what stuff? I, so I do an online course called Ignited Recovery, and it's Cute. there. If somebody wants to get help for drug, alcohol, porn, whatever, they don't have to go to rehab. They don't have to get therapy. They log on to this thing online, and they can do it whatever, 24-7, 3 a.m. in the morning, whatever you want to do. And part of the reason was when I was a graduate student at UCLA, I started researching, I don't know if you know this statistic, but only 10 to 12% of people who have drug and alcohol problems go get help. Mm. And there are a lot of people that were doing research as to why I decided to do the same thing. And there were four main reasons, shame, which is the one we're talking about, cost, 
We have can be She's really expensive. 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 And then logistics. Like who can take off a month from work or two months? I can't take off, yeah. you know? And then the last one was abstinence. People literally, half of my people said, I enjoy using or drinking too much to stop. And whenever I presented that in research circles, people would say, well, those people aren't motivated to get help or they're in denial. The same kind of excuses we hear all the time. And I said, what if it's something totally different? What if there are people who realize they have a problem, they want to get help, but they don't want to stop. They want to reduce. And it seemed really controversial and I didn't really understand why. And so I set out. And that was my question. I was going to ask. I didn't even get there because it's like, I would imagine from like all of these like experiences that I've had and people that I've known, like I, like my stepdad, RIP, like, like I'm so curious what he would think about harm reduction. Like I feel like he would be like, well, son, like you're only as sick as your secrets or something. Like there would be like. There'd be an idiom. There'd be some yeah, line. There'd be, like, there'd be like some, but I mean, I loved his lines. Like I was obsessed with them. They have like, so many of them. And he was amazing. I mean, yeah. I think, and, and, and I think that it's done a lot of like really gorgeous work for a lot of people. Like, Absolutely. I'm not, but for me, I, I do love a harm reduction model. But anyway, but I was just going to say like what I was curious about, like the Twitter trolls and like the Facebook, tro- like what do people say? Do they just like freak out? They're like. People freak out all the time. Like, the, but also the interesting thing about the blue book is it's like wasn't wasn't Bill Bill Wilson Bill Wilson wasn't he like on LSD when he was writing the book yeah or at least some there's uh, there's a lot of conversation that he was undergoing kind of like uh, hallucinogenic therapy. He was looking, you know, people are doing ayahuasca ceremonies, yeah. all this kind of stuff. That he was experimenting with that stuff towards the end, as it is. Look, can I just say, and I'm for anybody who's a devout um, religious follower, this is not a knock on any specific religion. But anytime somebody hands down a piece of writing and says, follow this like the Bible, I start wondering a little bit, right? Like, that's not my jam anyway. But regardless, I'm not allowed to question anything in this thing. Like, I'm not allowed to change any words or yeah. or adapt it to myself. That feels kind of weird. Because I, ca- I do the best material when I make it my own. Yeah, I do. And we need to individualize everything. Like there's 7 billion people on this planet. We can't fathom that a single book would just be the best fit for every single one of them. And so, you know, what I end up seeing is people who go in and let's say they even, they went to rehab and they're doing way better than before. But every time they slip up, quote unquote, and they have a drink in their head, there's this thing, there's a name for it. It's called the abstinence violation syndrome. (gasps) In their head, they go, well, I had one beer. Might as well have a 12-pack. I already screwed up. I might as well go all the way. So I tell people, what if you could count the percent of a single time frame that you were sober? Or what if you just actually looked at the amount? Like I used to, um, let's say I used to have a 12-pack a day, and now I have a six-pack a day. That's half the problem. And what I see in a lot of my clients that I start working with them, whether it's on the course or one-on-one people I work with, is they start adjusting the way they think about it. And like the client that I was talking about at the beginning of this, she had a really bad week or two after her mom died. And I told her, your mom just died. How can you give yourself permission and what else can you do to cope? And it made her feel better just to have that conversation instead of saying, well, you got to go somewhere and stop right away. Right. And so can I tell you what I think was going to end up happening? Within the next day or two, she'll go back to what it was before. Because sometimes we just, we need to let go. And maybe her way of letting go is getting drunk and listening to sad music at home as she deals with the death of her mom. I don't want to shame her because of that on top of the amount of pain she's experiencing. Yeah. But then it's like, if you're there for like four days and it's like really getting, it's like, you better give me another call. Like, give me a call back girl. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But that's, I found, look, this is, you said this really well before AA and full traditional kind of approaches have helped millions of people. No doubt. The thing is, we're actually losing more people to overdose deaths now than we ever have before. Which, 
overdose deaths go hand in hand with what you're talking about because this, this one time when I was like able to be like I didn't have like any weed at all for like eight weeks yeah. and then I like smoked like three big fat bowls like I had never quit yeah. and like I was like sitting in my apartment I will like never forget I like literally got like the bed spins and I got like so nauseous and like my lips turned green your tolerance went down oh my god yeah and then I remembered like as I was like on the couch like just sicker than shit you I was, talked like, about Corey Monteith when you had uh, Chris Evans on and one of the theories that he's is that he died because after rehab he went back to his hotel room and used opiates like he had before rehab and he passed. Yeah. And people mix them and you know now we have the all these fentanyls and all these um, synthetic opioids etc. But we're not winning this war. That's my whole point. It's kind of like people can bitch at me all they want, but we're losing this. More people are dying every year, and still only ten to twelve percent of people are. Accepting traditional treatment. So we need new approaches and they can hate me for it if they want to, but then come up with something else on your own. Come up with another method because if only 10% of people want to take the medicine, it's not only their fault, right? You got to change the medicine too. If the medicine tastes so terrible that only 10% of people are willing to take it, you got to change the flavor of the medicine and stop blaming the people because we just we keep blaming the addicts for it. We keep saying, well, they're in denial or they need to hit rock bottom. Somebody just said that to me on LinkedIn today. Well, all addicts have to hit rock bottom. Well, some, sometimes rock bottom is death. Right. So that's a stupid argument, in my opinion. To come and it's up like, with why? Better. Well, and like Steve always used to say, like, you don't have to ride like the elevator to the basement. Like, you don't have to go all the way get down. Get off somewhere else. Like, there is, like, a gorgeous way to get off somewhere else. Yeah. But I do think that the idea and, like, that pack mentality of, like, well, we all got 40 days or we all got this right. chip or whatever, it's, like, it does it increase. It, like, if you're already someone who, like, went to drinking or smoking or whatever because you have some anxiety or something that you're trying to treat, and then you trade that for this culture of this, like— you know, pack mentality, it can be really lead you, set you up for heartbreak and like set you up for failure because it's like, are you going to be like ostracized by your new group now? Or like, and it's like that. I wish it wasn't like that, but a lot of times it can be like that. It is. And I've, I've really good friends who are very good members of AA and other 12 step groups. And what I notice in a lot of them, those who do really well, not only go to meetings, but also got therapy and also got put on medication. So yeah, the book might have done them some good, and that's nice, but they also got all the other help they need. And it's like, and also, too, I think one of the things about Tosa that is actually so helpful and so gorgeous is like the connection and like the meeting new people. people. Yeah. And it's like the getting out of your house and like just connecting with people. That's And there is, I mean, you talked about pack mentality. Look, there is something to social pressure of not drinking today because you got to show up to a meeting, right? I get it. And my hope, when people read my stuff, a lot of times they, they think I'm anti AA. I'm not, and there's nothing in this book at all that suggests I'm anti-AA. I'm anti-AA being the only thing. I don't think that's the right solution. I think people shouldn't be sent to AA because what AA research shows us over time is that the vast majority of people leave within a year, and if you leave within that time frame, you get essentially no benefit. There's essentially the same rate of quitting if you don't do anything as if you don't kind of adhere to AA the way that they really want you to. So what everybody in AA says is, you know, it works if you work it and all those phrases. Well, that's nice to say, but you're still leaving 90% of people outside the door. And my whole thing is how do we bring more people in? You can like it, you cannot like it. I don't have to agree with your methods, but if you can bring more people in, there are hundreds of thousands of lives to save every year. And I'm all in for other people coming up with their methods. I just came up with mine. And I really hope that people start opening their minds to not fighting about who's right in this argument and rather just saying, look, there's like 180,000 people dying every year. How do we go help them? 
Uh, love that approach. That's, yeah. So tell us a little bit about the absence myth and about what this gorgeous approach is. Yeah, so the absence myth kind of sets out this notion that putting abstinence as what I call the gatekeeper, where if you think about it, to commit to getting help for alcohol, drug problems, porn, or anything, the first thing you have to commit to is quitting. But that's the hardest thing for these people to commit to because using in whatever way they're, they're doing it is the only thing that's making their day survivable, right? For a lot of these people, the only way they can get through the day is using. And what you're telling them is the way I equate a lot of times, imagine if somebody um, lost their legs or, or in some other way needed severe physical therapy, like they had broken both their legs. And then what you say to them is, cool, I've got physical therapy for you. It's right at the other end of the building. You just can't take your crutches or your wheelchair. That seems unfathomable. Like you're essentially take, asking them to crawl over to you on, on their broken legs in pain, et cetera. My approach is different. It's saying abstinence could be the absolute right solution for a lot of people. But why are you putting it first? Why are you saying to people, first you have to commit to abstinence and then we'll give you help? Why not do it the complete other like way? It's like a baby step our way over there. Yeah, and that whole, you know, you've probably heard the phrase half measures avail us nothing. I think half measures avail us a lot of stuff. You get a little bit better. You get a little bit of support. You get some people on your side who show you what it's like to have a better life. You find somebody like me or somebody else that you can actually rely on to tell them that shameful kind of hidden secret stuff that you've been hiding for decades maybe. Um, you start rebuilding your belief in yourself, your belief in what is possible for you, and then you start acquiring tools. You start meditating. You start exercising. You start doing all those things. I've had probably 40 to 50% of the people that I work with came to me not for abstinence. They came to me to reduce. And half of them say, you know what? I'm just going to stop. So what I love is by not putting abstinence in the front end, people get to abstinence on their own if that's what works for them. And so that's really the biggest piece of this is there are kind of a few myths that I talk in here, but A, that abstinence is a requirement for anybody who struggled, I think is a myth by itself. I drink socially and I've been doing it for 12 years. I'm an ex-meth addict, not a problem for me. Uh, the other one, we listen to a lot of research about abstinence rates in treatment. So we'll listen to, well, you know, people participate in this form of treatment or this other form and this percentage quit. But I talk about a lot of research that shows us that we're probably not getting the right numbers because people aren't telling us the truth. Well, because that's actually one of my favorite 12-step things that I think is true, uh, but it's also human. It's like, how do you know if an addict is lying? Uh, their lips are moving. But we always lie. People are, we all lie about stuff. Yeah, and but especially if you tell me. Sometimes. Well, if you tell me, well, you got to go back to the back of the line and we're going to look at you like a piece of shit. If you tell me that you used, did you use, by the way? No. Obviously, I'm going to lie to you because you just told me. What I don't gonna... like to use. I hate it. Weeds exactly. for losers. I don't like it. So I think people lie because we kind of make them lie, to be honest. And then um, the final one is that the only way to get to abstinence, the final kind of like myth, is that you have to put abstinence on the front end that I think people can reach abstinence later on if that's what is uh, required of them. I don't think it's the first thing we should look for. And I don't think it's the right way to measure where somebody's successful. Like a lot of the people who go into treatment in the first end, their relationships are terrible. Their nutrition and health is terrible. Uh, their job prospects and what they're doing, how their work environment is working out. If those things get better, what I've found over time is a lot of the other things get better as well. In my experience, I've definitely have seen like your method, like I didn't call it that, but like I kind of have done it like that. Like when I look at my, especially like from my 20s to like being like at 31, it's like been very much like three steps forward, one step back, three yeah. steps forward, two steps back, four steps forward, 18 steps back, 
20 steps forward. Like, but you know, yep. overall that was like kind of a joke that went off course, but uh, like, it's like overall a net gain. Yeah. Like I'm totally getting better, but there are like, there's setbacks. And I think that if you have like some certain amount of time or you have some certain amount of time with absence and then you like go back or whatever, like you're that time, like, is it negated, uh, for having gone back or something? I, you still I learn. Totally agree. Well, your dad, you said your dad was in, uh, in 12 step, right? Did he still have really, really terrible days and days where he really judged himself or days where he just wasn't doing as well as he should have? Well— You didn't mm, see that a lot, huh? No, I mean, honest to God, like, he— Not in terms of using, just in life. No, like, he was one of the most, like, well-adjusted, like, looked up to him, like, the most of, like, anyone. Because he really did work, like, 10, 11, 12, like, pretty much, like, every day in, like, minor situations. Like, he was very much, like— did I fuck up? Like, if so, like, I'll apologize and, like, I'm gonna, like, move on. He was very, like, I think he was one of the most, like, secure functioning adults I'd ever met. And also, That's like, amazing. He, yeah. And, like, he and my mom had, like, I think one of the most, like, secure functioning, like, amazing, like, relationships that, like, I'm so grateful that I was exposed to it. Cause awesome. had I not seen them together, I don't think I would have known, like, what a secure functioning relationship looks like in real very life. Cool. Um, so Steve really w- was, I think Steve was, like, a very special case. And, mm. you know, as, from when I knew him, he was, like, going to, like, meetings, like, at the beginning, like maybe like two times a week still, but by the time like my mom and Sutter were married, he was like a once a month oh, like so and he, had sponsors. He had, he had kind of figured it out himself. Yeah, I mean he had already been he did well. I mean he but it, no because no, I mean when he got sober in the Virgin Islands, he was like one of those like ninety meetings, ninety days sure. sponsor secretary. I'm saying by the time by the end he had he had created an entire life. Yes, and that was through therapy, going to triathlons, going there and he did go. he did all sorts of stuff. Right there, he like go. started like a Boy Scouts the first Boy Scouts troop actually in the American Virgin Islands because wow. he like he really wanted to help people and give back and he got his master's in English and uh, taught like taught English and, and he only ended up leaving there because like Hurricane Hugo happened and mm. it was like wiped the island out and that was like his like sixth hurricane he's like I cannot even again yeah well that's my favorite thing is when I hear about people who end up doing really really well they put this kind of wraparound life so they figure out what works for them I actually have a client that was really really similar to I don't know if the triathlon was a big thing for um, your, your it father. was huge for him yeah but I have a I have a client who we realized halfway through working together that he always needed to have an athletic event that was coming up. So he was always training for a marathon or a triathlon or or a swim or something like that because for him, he needed to wake up in the morning and know that he needed to be really disciplined about something. But that's what I love about doing really kind of holistic work around the help that people need is because sometimes it's nutrition, sometimes it's exercise, sometimes it's both, sometimes it's meditation. There are always these pieces that can plug in really, really well. And again... People find it in their own way. So Steve found his stuff through, it sounds like, a combination of therapy and um, and 12-step. And I just want I want us to live in a world where people feel like they can discover their solution without judgment that they, quote-unquote, did it the wrong way or, you know, that they're in denial, et cetera, et cetera. It's like even if you're, like, willing to come to the table and have, like, a conversation about this and, and how it relates to your own self-soothing and, like, your own life it's like you've already won like if you were willing to have that conversation like 100%. there is no right or wrong way at, unless 100%. you're like throwing in the towel or something yeah I mean I, I use a lot of those actually examples you know you talk throwing in the towel or failure a lot of people talk about I failed rehab or I failed out of treatment we look at relapse as a failure I look at them as learning opportunities I look at if you slipped up, the first question I ask is, let's talk about it. Let's talk about what happened. I don't want to avoid it. I don't want, I don't want to ignore it. I call a lot of the methods that I use kind of the deep tissue massage version of getting help. Walk towards the pain, right? Figure out why you're feeling the way that you're feeling rather than trying to run away from it. Because even if you're sober and you spend your entire life trying to run away 
from pain, you're going to be struggling. That was profound and true. What have we not covered or what do you need the children to know about about uh, the abstinence myth? Is I like l- that yoga class part when you get to like do whatever pose is your favorite that we didn't cover? I well, I mean, I think for me, I know that there are people listening right now who are struggling, right? That's, that's just a given. Um, something like 10 to 15% of Americans are struggling with addiction in one form or another. There's 25 to 30 million people at any given point in time. If you're struggling or if you're a parent or loved one of somebody who knows the struggling, I want you to start understanding that there's a menu of options out there. And you're job, if you want to overcome this struggle, is not so much to fit yourself into somebody else's model, but it's rather to find the things that work for you. Like anything else in life, like fashion, like hair, right? Not everybody doesn't use the same haircut. It just wouldn't work on everybody. You've got to figure out yours. And, you know, do the research. Uh, theabstinencemyth.com is a place where you can get, right now you can get the pre-sale for my book and go online and get that. Uh, Ignited Recovery, that's I-G-N-T-D recovery.com if you want to come to my courses or things like that. But I'm not the only source out there. There's a lot of it. I think I'm good at what I do, but I really, my goal is now to save a million people. I want a million people to beat their addiction. And and I can't do that. You know, that's why I wrote the book because I can't do that by seeing people one-on-one. I when, I when I give talks and I talk to mothers or, or fathers or siblings of people who've died from heroin overdoses and, and other addiction-related issues, it kills me because I think we can make this problem half the size or a tenth of the size that it is if we just open up the doors to other additional options and stop being so dogmatic and ignorant about it. <sighs> Man, that was a lot, mm. but in a good way. And yeah, and I think a lot of times like with – you know, grooming, which is not addiction, but it's like, it's just like, oh my God, is my hair the right way? Like, is it like, is this like working for me? I'm like, well, if it isn't, and then you could be cuter, like it's all fun and it grows back and you can, it's like not this thing you have to have like the definitive right answer on. And I think that that kind of is similar to me with how I think about recovery and health and how we take care of ourselves. It's like, there is no one way. It doesn't have to like be one way that fits all. And if you're even willing to like ask the question, I think that that means that you're at the table and Absolutely. and that's good. But, but not only that, it's that like could be fun. Like taking care of yourself can be fun. Like it yes. doesn't have to be this like laborious, devastating, like, Ugh, like what's working for me at therapy. Like it's, it's a lot of times it's called like outer circle activities. It's like, it's like cute. It's like, it's your yoga. It's your massage. It's your facial. It's your, it's it can, Whatever. It's, video games, going to a movie, anything. Yeah. It's like self care. Like it can be cute. It can be fun. It doesn't have to, even if you're in the depths and pits of hell. Yeah. Like it could be like adorable, like maybe not tomorrow at noon, but you could have like pockets of beauty, like, and not that long. Totally. Um, which I love is, it. Cute, yeah. Uh, well, I adore you, and thanks so much for coming in and sharing your time with us. Me. And thanks so much for writing this gorgeous book. And I'm so excited for it to come out. And thanks for sharing everything you've learned. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Vaness, and my guest this week was Dr. Adi Jaffe. You'll find links to Adi's work and socials in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at JVN. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. And if you enjoyed our show, subscribe, honey, and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Uh, write a review in Apple Podcasts. We live for review, honey. You guys have been doing so good on that. 
give yourself a hug for that. Give yourself a kiss for that. Uh, give me a hug for that. Uh, I'm so grateful. Um, oh, you want to introduce a friend? I love introducing friends. Uh, let them know how to subscribe. Like a lot of people are like, oh, it's like Facebook invites. Like I didn't see that the notification, but you got to do the thing and la- teach you how to go to that little purple cute thing. And it's very cute and it's very easy. And you sus- and you can subscribe uh, and share our links on your social. And uh, and we love that. We get a lot of tweets, honey. We get all the tweets. Some of them are asking for our episodes to be a bit longer. Some of them are for, uh, you know, wanting me to do episodes where people ask me for advice. So I'm setting up a gorgeous voicemail number where you can call with questions, and I'm going to be making a bonus podcast series where I try to answer them. Like... I don't know what's going on with your hair. Like it's, she gets so oily and you just can't get through and you try all the things, but it doesn't work. Or like, I don't know how to exfoliate or like this girl will not pay no attention to me or this guy will not leave me alone. It's kind of like a dear Abby, but she's kind of beauty. And then she's kind of life. And she's kind of, you basically just like ask me stuff, you know, based off of my life experience. Um, Am I a doctor? No. Should you take my advice? You be the judge of that. Uh, I, I'm just making you a gorgeous bonus podcast series that I want you to take part of. So uh, keep your questions as short as possible, but cute. Uh, we want to keep them focused. And as you can see, that is an issue for me. So uh, use a fake name if you want to remain anonymous, or you can re- uh, tell us your real name if you want to not be anonymous, uh, but make sure you know. Um, and leave your phone number if you're willing to have me call you back. So honey, leave that number. Uh, the show will be coming to Stitcher Premium later this year. The number is 323-606-9351. Again, that's 323-606-9351. And don't worry if you can't remember it. We'll include it in the show's episode description so you can just open your phone and find it there. Problems, advice, or whatever you're curious about, give me a call. 323-606-9351.